So, Will. Yeah. I had to text you when you put Shaft on the upcoming schedule because there are three films with the name Shaft. Right. There's the 1971 film, the 2000 film, and the 2019 film. And none of them have anything to distinguish them except for putting the year in brackets afterwards. Right. They're all called Shaft. I just am wondering, what would possess you to not differentiate the titles at all, even if they are this far apart? Um, brand identity? I was so confused, to be honest. (laughs) It's a little weird. I mean, part of it, too, is that there is a somewhat tangled continuity to them in that there are three initial Shaft movies that come out in quick succession. Shaft, Shaft's Big Score, and Shaft in Africa. And then the 2001 starring Samuel L. Jackson was very much supposed to be a soft reboot. I think in that movie, he's supposed to be Richard Roundtree's nephew or something like that. But then in the 2019 one, uh, which stars Jesse T. Usher, Jesse T. Usher plays the son of Samuel L. Jackson, who in that movie is retconned to have been Richard Roundtree's son. So it's three generations of John Shafts. Yes, and they're all in it together. Yes. I saw the trailer for the 2019 one, and it seems so much more action-y. Like, it seems a lot more in the vein of, like, uh, um, John Wick, almost. Which I think is a shame, because what's fun about the original Shaft is how reserved it is. I mean, even as a exploitation movie, it is a movie that is cool, not just in, like, oh, that's cool, but sort of in its temperament. Right. Whereas... The 2019 movie, which I did not see, at least the movie they are selling is like a 2019 action comedy, heavier on the action. Because this movie is, I mean, he's Shaft. He's the coolest private dick around. And he's actually a detective more than an action hero. I mean, most of the movie is him like solving clues. And then there's a 10 minute action scene at the end. Which has some cool stuff. There's the elevator business and using the fire hose. It's great. I love watching movies where people break into stuff and knock someone out and steal their uniforms. Like, that's always fun. Yeah, they steal the elevator operator's coat. I still find the idea of elevator operators so interesting because they lasted into the era where it stopped requiring skill. It's like a gas station attendant. But the difference is the labor involved in running an elevator, even when there were still elevator operators, was pushing a button. At first, I understand, because you had to, like, control it with a lever, and it required some skill of knowing when to stop it and how to open the doors and stuff. But eventually, there were automatic doors, and then there was one person on the outside to push a button, and one person on the inside to push a button. And that was their jobs. Yeah. And it is sad when jobs disappear, because that is people no longer have the opportunity to be employed as elevator operators. But at a certain point, when you're just pushing one button all day, I don't know why you would even want that job. Yeah. The best elevator operator business I can think of in a movie is in I Want to Hold Your Hand, the Zemeckis Beatles movie, where Eddie Deason plays this young Beatles maniac who is trying to get into the hotel where the Beatles are staying, and he masquerades as an elevator operator, but he doesn't know how to do it, and so he keeps stopping the elevator like between floors and people have to crawl out or jump out. <laughs> That's very fun. It's great. Uh... I think the best piece of elevator operator media is the song Elevator Operator by Courtney Barnett. And if you haven't heard it, seek it out. Of course I have not. (laughs) I figured you wouldn't have. But I... Oh, wait. What were we talking about originally? Have we started the episode? No. No, we're just talking about Shaft. Yeah. Shaft. 
huh, I never put together that an elevator shaft plays a big part in this movie. Oh, interesting. You know, if they had not figured out how to get Hugh Jackman back to the 1890s, then they would not have been able to use that elevator to save the uh, kidnapped girl. You know what needs a soft reboot? Kate and Leopold. Leopold. (laughs) But the problem is you can't call it Kate and Leopold II because that has much more dire implications. No, it should be Leighton Keopold. Oh, of course. And it's gender swapped. Is the movie about Meg Ryan realizing she's made a huge mistake in going to live in the 19th century? Yeah. Now that's a movie I would watch. Is the <laughs> sequel to Kate and Leopold of she steps outside for the first time and her boot sinks ankle deep in just horse shit. And she's like, I have to go back to the 20th century. <laughs> what a weird movie. Directed by James Mangold. If you personally could do a soft reboot, of any property we've covered on this podcast, Ooh. what would you choose? I mean, realistically, the answer is probably National Treasure. Uh, yeah, of course. Because we deserve it. I demand to know what is on page 47 of the President's Book of Secrets. But I'm not talking about another sequel. Because no, I'll do it about like Nicolas Cage's kid who's been yeah, like, chasing guess. this down. Yeah. I feel like if I was getting a National Treasure, I want Nicolas Cage back. Well, yeah, but you bring him back in the second soft reboot. Like, how you bring back Richard Roundtree and Samuel L. Jackson yeah. in 2019 Shaft. Or he's the mentor figure, and then you don't have to deal with John Voight anymore. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of... I feel like... The- I know your choice would be Shark Tale. Yeah, obviously. I will say, Will and I, before starting the podcast, did solve Shark Tale. We fixed Shark Tale! Which is, it can even still be called Shark Tale, but it's a movie about human Will Smith and human Jack Black, and Jack Black is the gay son of a uh, mafioso. Human Robert De Niro. Right. And actually dealing with that concept instead of just being a vegetarian. And I love the idea of like Robert De Niro as this aging mob boss like looking to hand over the reins of his empire. The movie could work. It could still be called Shark Tale. Will Smith is swimming with the sharks. The mob are kind of sharks. You still get a racetrack and Renee Zellweger. All of the fish puns should stick around. At the very least, Martin Scorsese should still be in it. I think Angelina Jolie should still be a sexy fish. (laughs) So wait, everyone is a human except Angelina Jolie? Yes. One of my favorite things going around recently was picking what movie should be made with all Muppets except for one human. I think it was inspired in part because The Great Gatsby just entered the public domain. There was that. And then, I mean, a while ago, someone was tweeting about how Knives Out would be incredible with all Muppets except for Daniel Craig. Obviously an incredible idea. Uh, Some people were very creative with that. I'm trying to think of what I would actually do a reboot of. I think we could expand the While You Were Sleeping cinematic universe. That movie rules. Like, follow her friend at the CTA, and it's like, while you were keeping... And it's about <laughs> a innkeeper. <laughs> so that's an entirely different character that you were just shoehorning into this universe. You're like a Netflix Christmas producer. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think it on the fly here. It was not a perfect pitch, but I'll work on it. All right. I would also be open to a soft <laughs> reboot of Pirates of the Caribbean, which is happening and will probably be a bad idea. Yeah, I think it'll be bad. But it could be fine. That's the hope. Jungle Cruise coming out this year. They made a great movie based off of a Disney ride, so things can work out. Pirates 2 and 3 are at least interesting. <laughs> yeah. I said good movie, but I do enjoy the sequels. 
They're weird. They're weird. We deserve more weird movies. I love weird movies. Did you see that racist argument that was like, is Parasite the sign that weird movies are in? (laughs) I did not see that. Parasite's kind of weird, but it's not like Pirates of the Caribbean 3 weird. It's also people are like, the movie that won Best Picture two years ago was about a woman f***ing a fish. (laughs) (laughs) That is true, too. Like, weird movies are here. (laughs) And and that was somehow like the mainstream consensus choice. That was the soft pick. Uh, anyway, should we start talking more about Shaft? Yeah, why not? Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast, uh, so we're kind of like Shaft ourselves. And the question we're digging into is, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable, or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or if it seems like it's going to be kind of a meaningful subplot, and then that woman disappears and a different woman comes into the movie. Uh, we will dig in and, it is and see what's going on. And it's still not very meaningful. <laughs> Right. Um, So this week, we are looking at the sparse but musically promised romance of Gordon Park's 1971 blaxploitation classic, Shaft. I very much enjoyed this movie. It's good. It was good. I also watched it immediately after watching Crocodile Dundee, and so I think I enjoyed it extra for having suffered through that first movie. I think the story of this movie I was reading about is very interesting. In that it was originally written to be white. Shaft. Yeah. It's based based on a novel where the character is white. And it just changes so much by casting a black man in a 1971 movie. Sure. I mean, the relationship with the police, for example, where Shaft is friendly with Lieutenant Androzzi, but very pointedly does not work for him or even really work with him. Right. It's quite a bit different when you're like, oh, this is a black guy who probably by a combination of choice and racism is working outside of the traditional authority structure. And it's also interesting that he only talks to one person in the police office because he's the only one that treats him as a human. And I I do think it, it is interesting in the way that it is like very specifically reflective of its period with stuff like, you know, Lieutenant Androzzi, who does treat Shaft pretty well, still likes Shaft in part because to him, he actually says it like, Shaft doesn't seem that black to him. Right. Like, Androzzi clearly is a guy where, like, he sees Shaft as distinct from, like, those other black people. But Shaft does land some really funny retorts about oh, absolutely. Androzzi's whiteness, too. Absolutely. But there's even the stuff where, like, Androzzi, you know, assumes that everything that's going on must be about the Black Panthers. Like, there are some real, like, 1971 law enforcement behaviors baked in here that I think are interesting. Especially, you know, it's directed by a black man, Gordon Parks, but it's written by white guys. Yeah, I was reading, and it is interesting how they try to appeal to everyone with this movie. And you can feel that. It's very good, but there is definitely the element of, like, this movie was also written so white people wouldn't be too scared. Right. And it's coming out in 1971, which is the same year as Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. So it's, like, the kickoff, really, of the peak of the exploitation genre. And Shaft is, like, the version of exploitation that white people are going to be more comfortable with. Which studio produced this? This is an MGM movie. Okay, because MGM was not doing well at the time, so it was not a good time for them to make a movie that only appealed to a certain audience. In that sense, it makes sense, but it is still very clearly, like, I mean, the black power movement is not exactly treated with sensitivity. I think the movement itself is portrayed as being pretty impotent where they mostly sit around in rooms talking and not really getting anything done. But I think Shaft himself, for example, is portrayed as being a pretty cool guy that the audience is supposed to like, 
who himself has a certain degree of black power attitude in the way he talks to Lieutenant Andrazi and other people. Yeah, I do love that he is not deferential to anyone in any way. I mean, even in the opening montage when he's walking through the street, he won't even defer to a car. (laughs) Oh my god, it was so stressful. I loved that sequence. I loved it. You know, again, I'm coming right out of Crocodile Dundee, which is also set in New York City, like 10 years later. And I'm like, seeing the same Howard Johnsons and stuff like that, but just so much more exciting to watch Shaft walk between cars. It was very exciting, but I also still just get stressed when I see people walking into traffic. He was okay, Mark. He made it out alive. Yeah. Imagine if that wasn't Shaft and it was just some guy that gets into a traffic accident. So, like we said, the movie's directed by Gordon Parks, who had been a photojournalist during the New Deal, like, working for the government, and then he became a consultant on movies, helping them to depict black people in more accurate ways. And then in 1969, he became the first black person to direct a major studio film, which was The Learning Tree for Warner Brothers, and then he he made Shaft. And he directed the sequel as well, which is Shaft's Big Score. I feel like Shaft in Africa sounds very treacherous. So, Shaft in Africa is written by Sterling Siliphant, who produced this movie and wrote In the Heat of the Night and The Towering Inferno. Whereas, like, the first two are both directed by Gordon Parks. They have the same writers. Shaft in Africa seems weird. Basically, like, Shaft is asked to go undercover in Africa to help put a stop to a human trafficking ring that is kidnapping Africans, taking them to France... And then, like, controlling their lives there. Now, why they needed Shaft to be the person to do this, I don't know. I haven't watched the movie. But it seems kind of weird. It sounds very strange. I just, there's never really been a very good depiction of anywhere in Africa from the 70s and before from what I've seen. (laughs) So anytime I hear Africa in the title of a movie, I get very concerned. That is fair. Uh... Wow. Because if there's an issue involving a kidnapping slave trade ring that is West Africa and Europe-based, a New York private detective's who you need. Right. That's that's the thing that I don't get. But again, I haven't watched the movie, so maybe it makes sense. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, so, Shaft. <laughs> yes. Played by Richard Roundtree in his first film role. This was his first movie? Yeah. He had done acting before that. Some TV, a lot of stage stuff. But this is the first time he was in a movie. He's very good. Yeah, he just oozes, like, cool charisma. He's just so laid back, too. Like, he's perfect at just the chill vibes. The movie is very much in the tradition of, like, noir detective movies, where it's all about being sort of slow and just watching things happen and going for a sudden movement when that finally becomes necessary. And Richard Roundtree looks so cool that you are happy to watch him watch what's going on. Right. I do want to talk about one of the most surprising scenes to me. Oh, yes, let's. Which is, at one point, Shaft goes to a bar where he clearly is known, and he asks the bartender who, I was like, wow, that bartender's coming across as very gay. And then he asks the bartender to swap places with him so that he can, you know, spy on the mafia people. And the bartender and Shaft, they're clearly friends. The bartender pinches Shaft on the butt as he passes by, and Shaft doesn't react at all. And that's after Shaft offers him 20 bucks to say, like, hey, will you let me fill in at the bar? He responds, there's nothing I wouldn't do for $20, and then pinches him on the butt. Right. And then Shaft doesn't react at all. And later, the bartender, when they're chatting as friends, the bartender says, like, I'm gay, and 
it's very surprising to see a openly gay character in a 1971 movie where it's just accepted and Shaft is comfortable enough to let a gay man pinch his butt and not react. What really struck me was how funny that character is allowed to be, and you're never laughing at him, you're always laughing with him. Yeah, he makes some very funny jokes that I think honestly would have played, maybe not today, but even in like the early 2000s, where one, he describes a woman as having groovy boobs, which I thought was (laughs) very fun. Um, Because he's like, oh, that woman with groovy boobs is checking you out, Shaft. Here's the thing. When he says it, you do know which one he's talking about. Yeah, you know exactly which woman it is. And then he's also talking about how a woman was coming onto him and he says, like, I'm gay. And then she says, I'll straighten you out. And his reaction was, it's not enough that I'm lovely. She wants me to play character parts. (laughs) That's the thing. Like, there are jokes based on the fact that he is gay, but they are never at the expense of him being gay. Right. You are laughing at the woman trying to have sex with him, not the fact that he is gay. Yeah. It was a shock to see, honestly. And at first I was so nervous and then it was so much better than I could have expected. Yeah, that was a a real delightful surprise in this movie. Because this was like an MGM movie too, designed for mainstream audiences. And it played to mainstream audiences. It was a big hit. It's hard to find out exactly how well it did, but it's credited with helping to save MGM from bankruptcy. I was just very happy about that. And it definitely did make me enjoy the movie even more because I'd been enjoying it up to that point because the plot is a gang boss's daughter from Harlem was kidnapped and it turns out it was by the mafia and the police are worried this will spark a race war in Manhattan. One thing I like is that Lieutenant Andrazi never says, like, I think a race war is going to happen. His attitude is like, I recognize that this would be a gang war, but to everybody outside, it would look like a race war, which would just make it worse. Right. Because it is just two gangs fighting over turf, but to the outside, it is black versus white. And so they're worried about that. So Shaft has to go rescue the daughter before things escalate. Right. And that's one of the things where I think the movie is interesting in the ways it's engaging with the culture of the time. You know, it's also, in a way, a bit of a forerunner to the mob movies of the later 70s. The Godfather is the next year. Yeah. And Shaft's relationship to everyone, including the mafia people, is always just interesting because he seems so separate from every group, in a way. And he is. I mean, he's even separate from the black community. He doesn't live in Harlem. Yeah. He knows people there, but he lives in, I think, the village. So it was very interesting to see. And it would be an extremely different movie with a white lead. Like, entirely different. It would be a much worse movie. But it would be a much worse movie. But you can also see how it's not a movie where you're, like, shocked to learn it could have been written for a white person, if that makes sense. But they definitely changed a lot and changed it enough to make it interesting. Instead of just a more boring movie about a white detective finding a gang leader's daughter. And that was something that Gordon Parks, who's the director who was a black man, pushed for. He's like, I want this to be about a black hero. Right. Because we still need many more movies with black heroes. Right. And I think, you know, at this point, they don't all have to be named Shaft in movies called Shaft. (laughs) We can have some other ones. I was surprised at how different, based off of the trailer for the Shaft movie from last year, or I guess two years ago now, I was surprised at what this movie was. Yeah, that's why I told you to watch that trailer, just because of how radically different it is. It's almost like Terminator 2 versus Terminator. Yeah, where Terminator 2 is like a proper action movie as opposed to a monster suspense movie. Right, and this is not a monster suspense movie, but 
it is just that radically different view that is kind of transposed on the original to where you're surprised when you watch the source material. The difference to me feels almost less like Terminator and Terminator 2 than like Terminator and Terminator Salvation. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it too. But in addition to like, you know, being a a good movie and all of that, Shaft is this like cultural phenomenon. It's advertised pretty heavily towards black audiences. They actually hired a black advertising agency to run the marketing campaign. It becomes a crossover hit, especially the theme song. The theme from Shaft wins the Academy Award for Best Original Song, which makes its composer Isaac Hayes the first black winner. It topped the Billboard Hot 100. It's number 38 on the AFI's Best Movie Song list. It's a great song. Yeah, it's awesome. There's just no, there's no question about all that. <laughs> and it, it tells you everything you need to know for the movie. Yeah, and not in a way where I was like, this is too much exposition via song. I was like, this is the perfect amount of exposition via song. Right. Uh, the score won a Grammy and a Golden Globe and was nominated for the Oscar. Richard Roundtree was nominated for the Golden Globe for New Actor of the Year. Like, this thing was a hit. Which it well deserved. Yeah. Now... Is there a lot of romance? No, there is not. No. But I think we will have some fun with it. Yeah. So do we want to start digging into the romance? Sure. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to walk through everything that's going on. And there are really maybe three points of romance in this movie, but I made it work. I am very proud of you. Uh, So we already walked through the plot of the film. So Will, do you want to take us to point one? Point number one is the theme from Shaft, the Academy Award winning song, in which we are told he's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. An assertion the movie makes in its opening paragraph, its thesis statement, if you will, and I think it's one that we should interrogate throughout this episode. Is it true that no one understands Shaft but his woman? Because I would argue that that is a mischaracterization of the romance of this film. I would argue that Shaft does not have a particular woman and that all of the women he interacts with do not understand him. (laughs) It is a flawed line. It's a cool line. I do love being told that it's a complicated character. Honestly, we should have put that line in the themes of all of the 2000s anti-hero shows. He's a complicated man that no one understands, except his woman. Uh, no, but then you like rewrite it for all the shows. So it's like, he's a complicated man, but he'll sell you cigarettes. It's a madman. <laughs> it's a madman. <laughs> Or he's a complicated man making meth in a bunker. It's breaking bad. He's a complicated man. The R is a gun. Welcome to Tony the Sopranos. I mean, I feel like a lot of those songs could have used theme songs that pointed out that the protagonist is not always a hero. Because yeah, that might have been helpful. It would have been helpful because a lot of critics, even not even critics, but just people on the internet to today still don't really grasp the concept of a show is not always endorsing the actions of its lead character. I mean, Breaking Bad is the big one where its fandom is terrible. Nobody made it all the way through Mad Men thinking Don Draper was a hero. I, You would be surprised. <laughs> because based off of all the people that were like, I want to dress like Don Draper, and he's so cool. I guess that's just people that watch season one. Yeah, and people who just like saw it and were like, fashion. That show was so much more cutting of the entire era than i was expecting yeah my friend's watching it now and she messaged me she was just like did people just not like their children before the 90s (laughs) children were meant to be seen occasionally and heard rarely they were accessories they weren't humans 
They were just yeah. something that you had to have because everyone else had them. Well, it's also kids didn't have any rights. Yeah, and the idea that you would spend time with your children was thought of as weird. Yeah, kids are dumb. Why would you spend time with them? It's like, I don't want kids, but I feel like almost everyone in that show also didn't want kids. The difference <laughs> is, I will not have them. But I mean, for I mean, now we're going down a very different rabbit hole, but like for Don Draper, it's all about play acting the life he thinks he wants. Right. Mad Men's a great show. Uh, yeah. We should get back to Shaft, the theme from okay. Shaft, but so, would recommend. One, he's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. Uh, which, you know, we'll see, does not hold up to scrutiny. All right. In point number two, after sort of being hired to look into the disappearance of this mob boss's daughter, we cut to Shaft. It's never 100% confirmed, but it's heavily implied that he is naked on a couch reading a magazine. <laughs> He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. He's very attractive as well. He's hot. Yeah. He's hot, but he's cool. He's very cool. So he's uh, reading a magazine on the couch, and a lady walks in. I could not figure out her name, and there are more women credited than I remember being in the movie. And the Wikipedia summary mentions no women. Yeah. I was very confused about their relationship because... I assumed this was the woman from the song. Yeah, they seem to be, like, dating. Yeah, she walks in. She says, oh, are you all right? He says, yeah, I got to feeling like a machine. Like, I need to be with you. And then they have sex. This sex scene is great. It was very intense. There's a lot of back kneading. There's, like, a lot of Vaseline on the <laughs> camera lens. <laughs> and, and, like, these colored circles, which I think are supposed to be, like, a mobile hanging from the ceiling, keep floating past. It was a lot. And it goes on Just for a while. It's a lot of back kneading and butt thrusting. Yeah. And then, does she even show up again? She shows up one more time. It, this is, like, not his girlfriend, I guess. I assumed this was the woman from the song. No one understood him but his woman. He was feeling like a machine. He needed to be with her. We'll probably check in with her more through the movie. Point three. <laughs> Point three. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. At this point, I'm convinced maybe it's true. No one understands him but his woman. In point number three, he gets on the phone to this same woman to tell her that he's not going to be home that night because he's going to be out working the case. Right. And he's talking about how, you know, it's tough being him. I got two problems. I was born black and I was born poor. As the call is wrapping up, she says, I love you. And he Han Solo's her saying, yeah, I know. We never see this woman again. (laughs) I'm so confused. It was so confusing. So at this point, would you say he's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman? No, because she clearly doesn't understand him. (laughs) She clearly does not. All right. Point number four. We're at the bar. He's a complicated man. But no one understands him but his woman. Um, how was this woman described by the bartender? Groovy boobs. Groovy boobs, that's right. She does have groovy boobs. Yes, her name I got. Her name is Linda. Yes, that is Linda, and she is white. She is. She's played by Margaret Warnke, who does not have a Wikipedia page, and I slept in today, so I didn't get a chance to look anywhere else for her. But they flirt at the bar. She's very flirty with him. Like, she is... Yeah. Undressing him with her eyes very clearly. And they go back to his apartment after he's gotten in a fight with the mafia. She helps clean his wound and then joins him in the shower. Yes. Always sexual. Yeah. So they have a very sexy shower. Uh, Mistakes is a point five. Yeah. The next morning. Hey, baby. 
Okay. Party's over. You had to split. Some other time, huh? Same feeling, same place. Right now, I got to take care of some business. The next morning, they wake up together, thereby implying that they also had sex. Right. And Shaft just, like, gets up, gets dressed, goes in and out, finally just kind of shakes her and is like, I'll see you around. I got to go to work. Yeah. And she is angry. She shouts, you're great in the sack, but you're pretty shitty afterwards. And then storms out. Which was a great exit line. Yeah. And that's it for the romance. And that's it for her. That's it for the romance. What would you say, Mark? Is he a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman? No, he is a complicated man. And women do not understand him because he doesn't have a woman. Actually, Linda does seem to understand it because she hits the nail on the head. Yeah, I would say I think Linda maybe does. But who is his girl? Like, I think it's the first woman. I know, but I'm just so confused because who is she? What does she want? Is she his girl? Does she think she's his girlfriend? Is he cheating? Or, like, I don't know. It's not a poorly developed romance. I don't know if it's a poorly developed romance. I don't think it's supposed to be much of a romance. I think it was just done the exact wrong amount, if that makes sense. The thing is, like, yeah, there is a certain James Bond quality to it. Yeah. In that... It feels like there is supposed to be more there than there actually is. But there's just enough there that when he then sleeps with another woman, you're like, wait, what's going on? Yeah, it's like I would have bought it more if they had just, like, shown her the other woman one more time. Just for closure of, like, laying out what their relationship is. Like, she's mad about Linda or she just something. Yeah, but that's not what the movie's about. I know. Like, I I don't want that at the end of the movie. No, I don't want it at the, I don't know. I just wish there was a little less or like she hadn't said, I love you. And he goes, I know. Yeah. That's the, the change you make. Yeah. Cause otherwise it's just him sleeping with different women, which I'm fine with. So Mark, do you find the romance of Shaft believable? I think I've made it pretty clear that I don't find it that believable. I don't know that I find it unbelievable. I just don't entirely understand it. But to be fair, I am not Shaft's woman. Yeah. So I'm not supposed to. I feel like if it's ununderstandable, it's probably... I guess it's not, like, automatically unbelievable. I buy Linda. That's yeah. perfect. Linda makes perfect sense. It's the other woman, so I'm not going to give this a 10. Where would you rate it on a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 means you believe none of it, 10 means you believe all of it? I feel like it's a solid 7. Okay, I think I'm going to go a 6, because I'm confused. Yeah, I'm confused too, but... Linda, really solid story from beginning to end, wrapped up. Yes, of course. The fact is, he and that woman seem to know each other in advance and have sex, so I believe that. It's everything else. So there is enough there for me to give it a a six or seven is perfect. All right. Now, do you think Shaft or Linda or the other woman whose name we didn't catch, are any of them dateable? Mm, No. (laughs) I would not want to Linda would be the most dateable. Yes. Linda would be the most dateable, except she doesn't, I guess she might be into dating because she did want something the next morning from Shaft. Yeah. But she also just seems fun. I liked the other woman. She was caring. Yeah. But Shaft, no, clearly. Um, do you think that Shaft would stay with either of these women? No. <laughs> no. Absolutely Definitely not. not. It's made clear in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Because you think he's in a relationship and that doesn't seem to do anything. Yeah. Oh my god. This is so fun. Now, the next question we ask is, if you had to pick someone in the movie to date, who would it be? The answer is clearly the bartender, Yeah, right? there's no other answer. 
He's the best. He's the best. He's hilarious. Most of the other people are gangsters or cops. Yeah. Neither of whom I would want to date. So, yeah, the bartender. All right. Now, here's the real question. Yeah, this will be interesting. Many of the movies we've covered on this podcast have been adapted into Broadway musicals. And I want to know, should there be a Shaft musical? I mean, so the question I need to be answered first is, is Isaac Hayes still alive? Oh, great question. Because it can't happen unless he is in it. Sorry, unless he composes it? Or, yeah, unless he composes the music. Isaac Hayes is uh, not still alive. He died in 2008 at the age of 65. So if there were a Shaft musical with music written by him, I think it could happen. But I don't know if I would trust anyone else to write the music. So my one thing is that, like, Isaac Hayes did write multiple Shaft scores. So there's all that there, and he himself was not, like, a traditional composer, at least when he wrote the music for this movie. Like, he could, like, play music, but he couldn't write music. So they had another guy, Johnny Allen, actually do the orchestrations of it. So I think you could use his Shaft scores, both from this one and from Shaft's big score, as a starting point. Yeah, because I loved the other music in this, too. It's not just the theme that stands out. No, it's all great. Yeah. I think it could work. I think you could make a I Shaft I think you musical. could do it. I don't it. know that you should. I don't think it... Yeah, I don't think it should happen, but I think it could. I would love to see, like, the 70s New York aesthetic on stage. Yeah, that would be fun. So, I think I would see it if it happened, but I wouldn't push for it. I'm not as high on it as I am on the ill-advised Congo musical. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Uh, I think that's about it for Shaft, the 1971 version. So next week, we wanted to look and see basically like what's the oldest movie that we could find directed by a black person. And we found via the great folks at the Library of Congress on YouTube, a film from 1920 called Within Our Gates that was envisioned in part as a response to D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. So we'll be checking that out. We'll also share the link to the YouTube version of the film. So if other people want to check that out, you can do that as well. I think it's also on the Wikipedia page. Like the whole movie is just on the Wikipedia page. I mean, it's in the public domain. Yeah. So it should be, it's not that difficult to find, hopefully. It's about 80 minutes and I'm looking forward to checking it out. Yeah. I've enjoyed our forays into silent film in the past. Yeah. Actually, I think we've only done one silent film and it was like the last silent film. Yeah. We did Modern Times, but you and I went to see... The Adventures of Mr. West in the Land of the Bolsheviks together. Great movie. I also... (laughs) We should do that movie. Yeah, I've also watched Nosferatu, and we watched Metropolis together, too. We did, yeah. (laughs) On a DVD at the movie theater. I was... Not thrilled. (laughs) It was so funny. When the DVD player, like, logo came up on the screen. Oh, I lost it. I could not believe it. All right. Until then, though, you can follow this show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at Love the Love Pod at gmail.com. We would love to include more films from our audience. Yeah. Uh, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right. Well, last question. Oh, <laughs> what boy. is the best piece <laughs> of dating advice we got from Shaft? Um, Lordy. I say. Get a gay bartender to be your wingman. That seems to work pretty well. Because he gets Linda very quickly. Once the bartender points out her groovy boobs. I mean, look, 
You know, obviously only do this, like, if you are in a relationship with a person, which may or may not be the case in Shaft. I thought it was when the scene happened, and this person is okay with it. But you can try sitting naked on the couch. Yeah. I feel like that's one you need to be already comfortable with a person for. Yes. Otherwise, that's bad. Yeah. Well, there you go. Until next time, I am gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.